So when you think of foreknowledge, election, predestination, be thankful to God. It moves us to worship and adoration. And it moves us to worship and adoration. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, he set his love and affection upon you and will not give up on his children. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you would turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 9, and we will read, I think, probably the first 16 verses, and then we'll go slightly beyond that in our study. But Romans chapter 9, you'll find it on page 1758 of the Church Bible. The Apostle Paul writes these words, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's Word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are His descendants, are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac, and your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not through the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, her father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, and just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His holy word. I wonder, as I was reading that this morning, how many in the congregation were saying the same thing. What? Romans chapter 9 is not an easy chapter to deal with or grasp or comprehend in any way, shape, or form. But we will come to it in a moment or two, and I hope I will try and make it uh, clear and explain what is going on. 
If you are visiting, visiting First Presbyterian this morning, a special and particular welcome to you. We are glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. Each Sunday morning, we take almost half of our entire service, and we guard that closely, because that is the time when we gather around God's Word together. And we gather around God's Word, and we read it, and we pause, and we think about it, and we seek to understand all that God is saying in order that we can learn from it and then apply it to our lives. And we seek to apply it to our lives in order that we might become more Christ-like day by day by day. And if you are worshiping with us regularly, you will know that's our pattern. If you are visiting today, that's just by way of an explanation. This time last year, in January, we began a series of studies in the book of Romans, and we stopped at uh, chapter 8, and last Sunday morning, we touched on chapter 8 as, a, I suppose you could say, a platform to move into chapter 9. And if you were with us last Sunday, you will remember me saying that chapter 8 is, and allow me to use a mountain climbing analogy, chapter 8 is almost the equivalent of a mountain climber who has been climbing all morning, perhaps left their, their home around 5 or 5.30, traveled to where they were climbing, trekked into, uh, into the countryside, and then started on a trek up the mountain. And chapter 8 is a little like that first plateau. You've been working hard all day. You come to chapter 8, it's that plateau where you you rest. Take off your jacket and your backpack. You sit down. You take off your boots and let your toes get some fresh air. And then, of course, you get out your sandwiches and something to drink, and you're refreshed and renewed. And you might even stretch out for oh, 10 minutes or so and get a quick nap. And then you realize, having looked at where you've been, you're now looking to see where you are going. And that's Romans chapter 8. It's a place of rest and refreshment and renewal. But now as you come to chapter 9, you're going to have to strap on those boots, get back on your jacket and your backpack, because as you come to chapter 9, it is not easy going. The Apostle Paul unfolds in Romans chapter 9 some of the deepest theological concepts to be found in all of Scripture. And in order to get through 9 and on to 10, you're going to have to go down before you go up. And so this morning, we are going deeper into some of the most profound tenets of the Reformed faith. And I'll explain that as we get into chapter 9. Chapter 9 is entitled, God's Sovereign Choice. And we're going to be flipping back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 and a little into chapter 8 in the course of our study this morning. So have your Bible, have it open. We don't often do this on a Sunday, flip back and forward. But one of the disadvantages in studying a, a book of Scripture for 12 or 13 weeks and then breaking and going back a year later is that we often forget what we learned during those previous 13 weeks. Hence, we'll be jumping back and forward this morning. And so let me just for a second show you how it's going to work. If you've got chapter 9 open, flip back to chapter 8. And we looked at this passage last Sunday morning at the 11 o'clock service. Let me remind you again what chapter 8 says. Chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose 
For those God foreknew, He also predestined. Predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. And at the end of chapter 8, and then chapter 9, you come across these theological concepts of election, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and sanctification. Quite honestly, I was so tempted yesterday not to bother with chapter 9, but simply to jump over into chapter 10 and enjoy chapter 10. But as a pastor, I can't do that. My job on a Sunday morning is to look at the entire counsel of God, all that the Scripture teaches. I don't have the right to cherry-pick bits and pieces here and there. We look at the tough passages, the passages that call for us to enlarge our heart and mind and to see things as God sees them. Because Romans chapter 9 is dominated by one thought, and it's this. Romans 9 lays out in great detail the redemptive purposes of God. And in layman's terms, that means this. How is it that God brings men and women, boys and girls, into a saving relationship with Himself? And that's where we're going this morning. Now, I will try and make it as warm and accessible as I can, but please forgive me. After 14 years of seminary, I can't just forget all of that, but I will try and make it uh, as simple and as clear as possible. Because when you come to the deep theological concepts of the Reformed faith, they are quite remarkable and extraordinary, and they move you to a fresh and new appreciation of who God is. But it is not an easy journey. In fact, each time we come to Romans, Romans, it is worth me reminding you what we said last year, that great treasure is often found in the deepest of places. It is almost never discovered easily or quickly. So, with all of that in mind, let's begin Romans 9. Verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ, and I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple, the worship, and promises. They are, excuse me, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So, what is the Apostle Paul saying in these first six verses? Let me give you a quick thumbnail sketch, as that will introduce the rest of the chapter. In essence, the Apostle Paul is saying this, and here you get an insight into the very heart of the Apostle, and you don't always get that in Romans. Often, he's writing logically, 
theologically, but here you see the tender warmth of his heart, and he says, I have unceasing anguish for my own people, the people of Israel, and I wish that I myself were cut off from the things of Christ in order that God might save them. Now, folks, that's quite a prayer. That's quite a prayer. Think of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I would willingly give up my intimacy with the living God, every answered prayer, every moment when He has protected me and then led me and guided me and blessed me and drew me to Himself on the road to Damascus, I would give all of that up, my eternity in heaven with God, and that deep intimate knowledge that I have with Him, I would give all of that up for the sake of my own people. Talk about having a passionate heart for others. That's the Apostle Paul. It is spectacular, utterly selfless. Now, are you ready to go a little deeper? Because it's about to get very complex. Verse 10. He's talking, remember, about a Jewish background, and he says, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, her father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. Now, let me explain if I can. What the Apostle Paul here is saying is this. This is why we read Romans 8 a moment or two ago that within the biblical doctrine of election, it's an umbrella term, there exists foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and sanctification. There are several subcategories, but it begins with God's foreknowledge. And you, of course, are right to say, okay, Richard, I'm with you. I'm following you. This, this is good so far. But what do you mean when you talk about foreknowledge. Break it down. Make it acceptable, or accessible, rather. Help me to understand these deep theological terms. Well, let me try. Many of us would be brought up to believe the following. God takes His telescope, and God looks down through the history and the tunnel of time, and He sees who will receive Him at a particular point in history. Now, let me use myself as a reasonable illustration. I was 20 years old when the girl, who's now my wife, took me to an evening service, and there was an Argentinian evangelist speaking. It was May the 12th, 1980. And the argument for some is this, that foreknowledge is God looks through the tunnel of time. He focuses in on my life, and he knows that in the year 1980 AD, I, Richard Gibbons, that night will give my life to Christ. I will ask him to forgive my sin and come and live within my heart. And since God knows all things, since his knowledge is comprehensive, exhaustive, 
Therefore, God looked through the tunnel of time. He then could see the commitment I was about to make. That is God's foreknowledge. And so then he did what? He predestined me up to that date through all sorts of uh, channels and uh, challenges in my life, knowing that I would come to know him. And that is often the popular understanding of foreknowledge. Now, are you with me so far? This is when I need you to say, yes, Richard. You're not, but it's nice to hear you say it. Now, that's the popular understanding of foreknowledge. But let me take you to a biblical understanding of foreknowledge, and it's this. If foreknowledge is based on something we will do at some point in the future, predestination and election of God is based on what we will do. But the Scripture teaches the opposite. You are saved by grace through faith, this not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not something we do, but it's something He has done. And Romans 8 and Romans 9 teaches us this, You see it again in Ephesians. If you were at the Wednesday Bible study, this last Wednesday we were in 1 Peter, and Peter talks about election and foreknowledge and predestination and grace and all of those wonderful theological terms that Presbyterian pastors love. And foreknowledge from a biblical perspective is not that God looks through the tunnel of time, but in fact the opposite. Before time itself began before the foundation of the world, God foreknew His children, and He lavished upon them His love and grace and affection. And He said, they are mine, and I love them, and I cherish them. And no matter what they do, I will chase them down. I will never give up on them. I will never abandon them. My hand and my love and affection is upon them, and they're mine. And I look forward to the day when I know they will surrender their life to me, and they will come to know me in and through the gospel. And that's why when we talk about the eternal purposes of God, it's God Himself who leads and guides and directs our entire lives, and He chose us for a purpose that we might come to know Him and love Him and love Him deeper and deeper and deeper throughout the rest of our lives and enter into a relationship with Him. And how did He bring that about? He brought it about through the gospel, with Christ coming into the world to die for us in order that our sin might be forgiven and we would come to know Him. It's not something we do. It is something that He has done, and it moves us to worship and praise and adoration. That's how good our God is, and He utterly refuses to let anything or anyone come between us and His love. That's why 
Paul wrote Romans 8 and Romans 9, because he lays it out in great detail. Now, if you think that was deep, let's go one more step before we're finished this morning, and it's this. Verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. One of you will then say to me, then why does God still blame me, for who can resist His will? And in essence, what is said here is this, If God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy and will harden those whom He will harden, how can He possibly blame those whom He has hardened? It's just, it's unjust. Why would God put His saving grace on some and not on others? That's just unjust. That's not a kind of God I can worship. I want a God who is not only just, but I want a God who is impartial and fair and honest. That's what I want. And my question always is, and I'm sure it's yours as well, do you really want justice or do you want mercy? I have to tell you, the last thing I want is justice. I want mercy and I want Him to forgive me and cleanse me and change me. I want Him to transform me, and I want to feel His love and His grace and be renewed and transformed by it. I don't want justice, because His justice would be awful, just awful. And finally, as Paul makes these arguments, how does he wrap up what he is trying to say? He says, verse 20, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purpose and some for common use? Well, allow me please to wrap things up with a final illustration. And it's this. Paul uses the analogy of the potter and the clay. And of course, many of us have seen it on television, or perhaps some of us have been involved in pottery at some time or seen pictures of it. And in essence, you have the potter's wheel sits there. And we looked at this last year when we touched on Romans 8. And of course, they're pushing it away and away. And they take a lump of clay, put it on the center of the potter's wheel. uh, And of course, it will be spinning round and round and round. And the potter will take his hands and he'll shape and fashion the lump of clay in order to make a bowl or a vase. Uh, or a plate, or whatever is in his mind. And he'll take that clay, and he will knead that clay with both the palms of his hands, and sometimes with his fingers, and occasionally you'll see the potter dip in and get some extra water and put it on uh, to make it more pliable, and it continues to work and continues to work. And the wonderful thing in the picture that Paul is describing for us is this— Now, when the potter is making a vessel for his own use, when he is fashioning it after his own desire, and he comes across a blemish 
or he comes across a part of the clay is not quite what he needs. He doesn't scrap the whole thing and throw it in the corner. What does he do? He begins to work the clay and knead it and pull it up and out if he's making a vase. And then what does he do? He takes the imperfection, and he brings it to the top, and he brings it to the top, and he brings it to the top, and eventually he takes the imperfection, throws it away, and then continues with what is left in order to make it perfect and whole. That's why Paul used that analogy, because in God's sovereign purposes for you and I, that's exactly what He does from the moment of our conception. And in fact, before the foundation of the world, He had in mind His purpose for you. And that may be for some of you to model what it means to be a grandparent for your grandchildren, because they will have no other grandparent to model as you can. Or it may be His purposes for you in your place of work to show a living and active Christian faith so that others will see in you the things of Christ. And He models and shapes and brings to the top all the imperfections, and He gets rid of them and continues to work. And after He has the earth and clay, what does He do? He puts it in the oven, and then He closes the door and he turns up the temperature in order to do what? Harden what he's made so that it can be tested and used, and then it is glazed and turned into a thing of beauty. So, when you think of foreknowledge, election, predestination, be thankful to God it moves us to worship and adoration. And it moves us to worship and adoration. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, He set His love and affection upon you and will not give up on His children. He will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. And we belong to Him. Why? Because there came a day when we gave our hearts to Him no, it was because He sovereignly, lovingly, graciously drew us to Himself. I think that's worth an amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. We freely confess we have not plumbed its depths or even fully understood all the wonders of it, but we do thank you for your love and grace and goodness to us. Father, bless us, please, as we go into a new week, and may we turn often in your direction and do what we sang in order to seek your sovereign promises. Father, bless us, please, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Phil Hargrove, and I'm the Ignite Worship Service Pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. And at Ignite, we like to do four things. We call them the four C's. One, we want to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Secondly, we want to build community. That means we connect with each other in the service as well as outside the service. Third, we want to celebrate what God is doing among us. And fourth, we want to be connectional, connecting the Bible to everyday life as we go live, work, play, and stay in this community. So come at 1045 on Sundays to experience at night and see what God is doing with and among us.